It was the best treat ever. They were just like little bunny nuggets. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the only podcast with the title, The Raw Safari Podcast, The Raw Safari Podcast. I'm really excited to have you all back for another fun and thought-provoking episode. You know the deal by now. Rossafari.com is the website. Patreon.com slash Rossafari to support the pod. Rossafari.redbubble.com for merch. And at Rossafari on Instagram and Facebook for pictures and other fun interactive stuff. Oh, and of course, make sure you hit subscribe, and if you can take the time to leave a five-star rating or even write a quick review, I'd appreciate it. And also, don't forget to search me on OnlyFans if you want some explicit content. I'm kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Nobody wants that. Today, I'm bringing back Colleen Adams of the Cincinnati Zoo for a second episode. So, if you haven't listened to Colleen's first episode yet, I highly recommend you do so, especially since this episode has some updates about the animals featured in that one. It's the 12th episode of the podcast, entitled, What Do Bass Players and Tamanduas Have in Common? Interestingly, one part of that episode is the topic I hear the most about when people discuss the podcast with me. Colleen talks about how when you have a moment with an animal, for just that moment, you are that animal's whole world, and it is your whole world. That line, and the story around it, has not only impacted a lot of listeners, but has even made it into a scholarly paper. Colleen and I both really enjoyed seeing the podcast episode cited in a bibliography. And, like in any good sequel, Colleen has another brilliantly in-character moment in this episode where she makes me rethink something I think many of us experience at zoos. And, honestly, it's a pretty profound moment. The world needs more Colleen Adams. Yeah. Um, so, without further ado, here is my second interview with an amazing interpretive keeper and my very good friend, Colleen Adams of the Cincinnati Zoo. All right. So, Colleen, welcome back to the Raw Safari Podcast. Yes, John, thank you so much for having me again. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. And for those that have missed your first episode, first of all, shame on you. And you should all go back and listen to that right now. But second of all, uh, tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Yeah, so my name is Colleen Adams. I am an interpretive keeper at the Cincinnati Zoo. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying I work with the animals that are used for shows, programs, news appearances, corporate events, and anything that falls into that box. So I've got about 200 animals that are all pretty hands-on that you can get up close and personal with. 
Amazing. And um, I'm curious, why the term interpretive keeper? Yeah, so funny you ask that because we're actually thinking of changing our name from interpretive. And um, the reason that it was interpretive in the first place is because the work that we do with those animals is a lot of interpretive work. So we will take them out for these one-on-one interactions with guests and we try to interpret what the animals are doing and try to link that back to the animal's natural history to give a really good message, a really good conservation message, and to speak about the species. That makes sense. So what kind of um, studying and, and what kind of like work do you have to do to figure out how to interpret what an animal is doing? Most of it's just experience. You kind of learn as you go. So I, do, I did go to college for um, animal sciences, basically. However, I would say that 99.9% of what I learned about behavior happened from being in the zoo field and watching animals and watching a variable change in their environment and then seeing how that affected them. So you're able to kind of predict when a behavior might occur based on when you see a variable change in their environment. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. So you must get to know your animals really well. Extremely well. Zookeepers rely very heavily on their bonds with their animals. My head keeper and I were actually just talking today about the fact that there are kind of two sides to training an animal. There's the logistical side, the science side um, of training, and then there's the bond and the art side of training. And we were talking about when we rely on the bond more heavily. For example, ultrasounding a tamandua is very bond-heavy when she lays on my lap and allows an ultrasound wand to be on her abdomen. And then something like collaring a fox is very on the logistics side. I need to make sure I have all my ducks in a row and my communication is very clear. Makes sense. For those who are wondering and playing along, two minutes and 22 seconds is the official time uh, for, for, you know, for how long it took calling to mention it to Mandua because we knew it was coming. We just weren't sure how quickly it would happen. And it was two minutes and 22 seconds. I think that's pretty good, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. So let's uh, let's talk about your Tamanduas. Obviously, um, we did this on the last episode, and so we're not going to rehash, but we've got two Tamanduas here. And give me an update on Sal and Isla. Yeah, so Salvador is our male southern Tamandua, and Isla is our female. And we have actually been putting them together for breeding very recently. Just in the That's last- exciting. Yes. In the last few weeks, so if everything was successful, we are looking at potentially an April baby, which is when my birthday is. So that would be pretty awesome if it was born around my birthday. And if it's early, it could be around my birthday. I'm yes. a March 31st baby. Which so, would be uh, awesome as well. Yes, yes. John the Tamandua. Or Rasafari the Tamandua. This oh, isn't going to happen, good. is it? This is, this is not going to happen. I'll put it in my back pocket. Okay. It's a zoo, <laughs> it's a zoo dream, right? Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Well, I'm really excited to hear that you're excited about that, I'm sure. And um, speaking of Tamandua breeding, go ahead and tell everybody about your new position, if that's the right word, in the AZA. Yeah. So it hasn't formally started yet, but I was um, recently contacted um, by the SSP coordinator, so the Species Survival Plan coordinator for Tamanduas, um, asking if I wanted to become essentially a um, Tamandua breeding consultant. So he was getting a lot of questions about the how-tos behind breeding, and his job is more on the logistics side of who goes with who and animal transfers and such. So when it came down to the nitty-gritty details of when to bed the enclosure down and do you leave the pair together and all those kinds of questions. Um, he needed some people to kind of field some of those questions and, and answer them. So he asked if I wanted to come on board and do that. And I 
currently have 11 or 12 zoos that I'm consulting with even before getting his request. So it's really cool. Amazing. So basically what you're telling me is that you're the Dr. Ruth of Tamandua's. You know, I'd love, I'd love to accept that title. I think I need to do more work first. <laughs> you also need to work on the accent. Uh, yeah. Okay. I have no accent. <laughs> no. You, well, you have a little bit of an accent. Really? Don't forget, everybody's listening to you right now. Yeah. Certain words come out a little, little Michigan-y. Even like though Apple? A, yeah. Oh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> cool. So um, are there any of the animals that we talked about in the last episode that have any other updates that are worth mentioning? So if anybody is was listening to the last episode and you heard us gush about Lucille, one of John's very favorites. Um, I'm happy to announce that she has been all over the University of Cincinnati's Instagram. Now that they're doing some football games, she's appearing to cheer them on once a week. So if you want to get some different content of her than what the zoo posts, you can head on over to their Instagram and check that out. Um, and then as far as other animals with some updates, Zulu's still rocking it. She's still one of the best animals here at the Cincinnati Zoo. And I gave you a Tamandua update. So I think that's... Yeah, we hit them and then Frankie and Otis. And they're, they're still yeah. being foxes. Yes, they are still being incredible, incredible foxes. When I got here today, they were in, in a box. It yep. was adorable. They sleep in their litter box. Yes, that's that's they what they do. They curl doing. up together in their litter box. Real cute. Yeah. Real cute. Yeah. So, all right. Very cool. Um, let's talk about some other animals because it occurred to me after the last episode that you said that uh, you have around 200. Yes. And we did, I think, seven. Yes. <laughs> so today's goal is 193 animals. Good. Okay, no, cool. All right. Let's start with Rico because okay. Rico has gotten pretty popular. Yes, so Rico is one of our rock stars here at Cincinnati. He is one of our most requested animals when we are out and about in the park. If I'm going to be asked where a certain animal is, it is usually the gorillas, Fiona, or Rico. Those are the three that I send people to the most often. And Rico is a prehensile-tailed porcupine, in case we forgot to mention that. He lives in the Animal Ambassador Center. If you ever happen to get to Cincinnati and you want to go check him out, that's where he is. And he has just gotten so popular for his crunching videos. Uh, <laughs> above all else, that is the thing that people seem to love, the sound of Rico's crunching. So he is a rodent, being a porcupine, and he's got teeth that never stop growing. So he has to constantly be crunching on hard things to file them down. And the sound of his crunching could probably lull a baby to sleep. It is just <laughs> so soothing. And we love to post those videos because people, they just eat them up. It's time for Interrupting, 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 Interrupting John. Mm. Well, and you knew it was coming, but here is some audio from that clip. Adorable and soothing. All right, back to the interview. Absolutely. And are you one of the people who takes those videos? Yes. So I've taken a plethora of Rico chewing videos. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah. And I'll put in some audio of that here. Oh, for yes, them. please. So, yes. <laughs> um, cool. So, you know, I'm curious because I know that you take a lot of pictures and videos uh, and send some to me, which thank you. Um, but, you know, I'm curious. Cincinnati does such an incredible job of making animals into celebrities. Um, people who have never been here. My mother is obsessed with Fiona and I've gotten her multiple Fiona gifts over the years and stuff. She's never been here, you know, never even close. And, um, yeah. And I'm just curious, 
Why is that important? And how do y'all go about doing that? And how do you feel about your role in that process? Yeah, so why I believe it's important is one thing is that not everyone can make it to the Cincinnati Zoo. And social media has done an amazing job of extending a zoo's reach beyond its own walls. And I love that our PR department takes that so seriously and does such a killer job of it. Um, We've got a couple people in our PR department, and they are so open to posting the content that they receive from the keepers. So a role that I play is I'm able to just collect footage during the day of my animals doing all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be staged. It doesn't have to be scheduled with PR. They don't care if they're the ones that take the pictures or the videos. They welcome anything that we can send their way, and then they use it. So it's really reinforcing for us the keepers, to have our animals be celebrated and the work we do be celebrated. And it's also just so great for the general public to be able to get closer to these animals, even closer oftentimes than they would get to be if they came onto zoo grounds because so much of it's behind the scenes, behind the scenes work. And by making our animals celebrities and by using social media long before COVID came around, it meant that people were already tuned into us. So then when COVID hit, they were able to fall back on us as a source of education, a source of entertainment, and a source of happiness. I can't even tell you how many people have come through our gates and stop us almost every day to thank us for doing the home safaris, the Facebook lives, and things that brought just a little bit of joy into their life when they were quarantined at home. That's, yeah, that's incredible. That's amazing. And, um, Are you the, would you say you're the most prolific sender of things? Um, Because I swear when I look at the the Cincinnati Instagram, it is mostly your animals. I think that I probably am one of the top. There are definitely (laughs) some good Fiona contributors as well. Africa does a really good job getting PR, some of their their content as well. And then um, PR is just really good at even seeking out the content and trying to mix it up and make sure that everybody's got some representation. Cool. Well, I know that we talked about it um, a little bit on the last episode, but I have to say it again. The the PR team here is second to none. They um, are phenomenal. I As I travel around from zoo to zoo, a lot of times they tend to run into each other in my mind. And, you know, I'll try to remember, oh, there's this animal I saw or this picture that I took or whatever. And I, oh, where was it? And could literally be anywhere, in, you know, throughout the country. That has never happened with a Cincy animal. And I don't even just mean the famous ones. It just, there's just something about how they make everything here so special and mm-hmm. so unique. And um, to somebody who travels all the time, it really stands out. It's really yeah, cool. it's really important for us to um, connect people with our animals on the deepest level possible. So we go beyond just saying that's a lion. We say that's John the lion. Right. A lot of zoos don't like to announce the names of their animals. I personally love that we are very open about that because it allows our guests to connect with the animals in a way that they're going to remember them better. They're going to care about them and it will hopefully connect them to the wild counterparts of those animals, spurring them on towards some sort of conservation or greater respect for the species. Absolutely. That's, that's incredible. So let's talk about conservation for a second. Um, you know, zookeepers play a vital role in conservation, but I don't think it's often seen that way by the public. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So um, one of the biggest roles that we play in conservation is definitely the education component, right? So we are here um, right up close with people that we are hoping to get to fall in love with these species and do some, you know, of their own efforts towards conservation. But 
the education piece is so important because if somebody never falls in love with the animal, why are they ever going to go home and do and take the next step and give towards a conservation initiative or attend a fundraiser or, or one of those kinds of things? Why are they going to take greener steps in their own personal life to be a better steward of this planet? So the way that zookeepers are able to connect the audience to wildlife you can't do that anywhere else. You're not going to walk up to a wild tamandua and get the same experience as walking up to Isla. I promise it won't go well if you try to do the same thing. So that's one of the vital roles that we play. But another vital role that keepers play is our work with breeding animals in captivity. And why this is so important is because creating a sustainable population of animals in captivity that we can use for education keeps us from having to pull animals from the wild less and less and less. And that's important, obviously, because we can protect those wild counterparts and help their numbers continue to grow. And very occasionally, we are able to reintroduce animals. And there are zoos all over that play um, parts with different species of breeding and reintroduction into the wild. For those listening, check out the Roger Williams Park Zoo episode because uh, he talked a lot about the reintroduction programs that they're doing at the zoo and stuff. And there's some really incredible things happening right now all around the world that zoos are either funding or actively participating in to help reintroduce endangered or extinct in the wild animals. And one other very key component that I can't believe I forgot to mention is the research side of things. The research that we are able to do in zoos because we have such a controlled um you know, population and we can control so many variables is incredible. I recently um, was introduced to the um, the woman who runs the Belize Tamandua Rehab Center, the only Belize or rehab center for Tamanduas in Belize. And when she came up here, I was just in awe of everything she had to say. I was obviously eating it all up. And she was kind of having the same reaction to me. And I found that really surprising. And finally I said, why like why are you wanting to hear everything I have to tell you about tamanduas? And she said, well, Colleen, you work with adult tamanduas. I raise them and rehab them from babies and I release them. I don't know as much about the adult tamandua lives throughout their entire lives and their preferences and how they respond under controlled circumstances, how they will react to guests, some of those types of things, their trainability even. So, Keepers are able to provide a wealth of information, um, even about wild animals that wouldn't be known had they not um, come into contact with them in captivity. Makes sense. And that's actually something that I find shocking. Um, And the more that I do this, the more shocked by it I am. Uh, We don't have a ton of studies about animals. I mean, there are certainly animals that we do. Horses, we've studied everything because they make a lot of money with uh, breeding for racing and stuff like that. But tamanduas red pandas. Even I'm amazed um, at how many herps are not studied at all. And then if a vet needs to, you know, suggest a medication for, say, a chameleon, they will base it off of turtles because turtles are actually pretty easy uh, herp species to study. And a lot of people have have studied them. Um, But like, it is amazing what we don't know about animals that you see every day. And, and zookeepers are at the forefront of helping observe that, which is amazing. Absolutely. If you are a person who is interested in, in helping the world in some way and you're at all scientific minded, um, yeah, get into, find a species you care about and, and do some research. You would be amazed at how little is out there. 
Yeah, and there are citizen science projects as well, where sometimes the reason that research isn't done is because we just don't have the bodies to collect enough data to make something statistically significant to be able to present it as any sort of data. So um, look for citizen science projects in your area. Look for them online. There are a lot of a lot of scientists that just will post camera trap images and they simply just need you to go through these camera trap images maybe while you're watching TV or something and click if you see an animal in the picture. It's really simple, but it sorts them into files and folders that these scientists can go back through with a fine-tooth comb but not waste so much of their time. It's like a cash pot, only like for good reasons. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Cool. So, all right, we, we've gone into conservation, but we need more cute animals stuff. So you've got, you know, 193 left to choose from or 192 now that we talked about Rico. So pick an animal and tell me something. Yeah. So I would love to talk about armadillos a little bit. So we here at Cincinnati, I believe someone can comment on the podcast if I'm wrong, (laughs) but I believe at last count, we have more armadillos at Cincinnati in our collection than any other zoo in North America. That's amazing. Yes. It's pretty cool. So I, I have to ask a very important question. Yes. Screaming hairy armadillos? Yes. Yes. We have the most, specifically, the most screaming hairy armadillos. Ah, That is my favorite species name of all species names. Yes, because they actually do scream. It's pretty crazy. Look up a video. It's time for... Interrupting. 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 Interrupting John again. Oh, Colleen, you sweet summer child. You should know that there's no need to look up a video when you've got John Rossi here to interrupt and play that audio for you. Here it is. I love that little extra noise right before the last scream so much. Okay, back to the interview. Um, So we've got some scrimmy hairy armadillos, and we have our southern three-banded armadillos. If you guys are hearing the word armadillo, you might think about a small, cute mammal with armor that rolls up into a ball. However, I'm here to tell you that only the three-banded armadillos can roll up into a ball. But they can roll up into such a ball that it is actually difficult for their prey, something like a jaguar, to pry open. And when I first started here at the Cincinnati Zoo, we were taught how to pick them up, how we do here at Cincinnati. You have to be very careful not touching the abdomen because if something spooks them and they curl into a ball, I was told it is somewhere around the force of somebody slamming a semi-truck door and that you would have to go anesthetize the animal till it fell asleep and you could open them back up and pull your finger out. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, so we are very careful how we handle them. (laughs) Other than that, they're pretty harmless, though. They're really great ambassadors. And then we also have our six-banded armadillo. Um, Those of you who follow Cincinnati at all, you might know of Dilbert, the six-banded armadillo. He's kind of more like a dog than an armadillo when you think about his personality. And um, we are actually breeding all three species of our armadillos here at Cincy. Amazing. But you can't just say, hey, his personality is like a dog and then move (laughs) on. Come on. Talk to me about this. Okay. So one thing is Dilbert really loves his stuffed animals. He loves to pick them up and carry them around. Same Dilbert, same. (laughs) Yes. He does love his stuffed animals. So we'll take him to a classroom and let him run around and we fill it with toys and he'll pick them up and uh, run around with them and roll around with them a little bit. And he also really loves to be held, and he really likes back scratches, and he really likes to go foraging for any of the treats that campers may have left on the ground. Oh, good. (laughs) Yes. So Dilbert will eat anything ever, 
in front of him. Um, he also goes on walks and gets put on a harness to go take those walks. And he loves attention from his keepers. And he's really active. He's really just like a puppy. <laughs> cool. So um, if somebody here doesn't necessarily know um, anything about armadillos... Go ahead and talk about armadillos for a second. Yeah, so armadillos, like I mentioned just a minute ago, they're little mammals that have armor. Um, so keratin, what makes up our fingernails, makes up armadillo armor, and it helps protect them from predators. However, I'm not really sure how the six-banded armadillos are so protected because they primarily sleep on their backs with their <laughs> fleshy belly up in the air. Really, look it up and you will find armadillo uh, pictures with them sleeping and is just absolutely ridiculous and their bellies are so squishy it looks like a bowl of pudding charles darwin would be so mad at them he would be. <laughs> i don't know how they are not the fittest i don't know how they've survived um they are largely insectivores so we do hear at cincinnati feed them an insectivore pellet so a pellet that consists of a lot of the nutrients that they would get from the insects out in the wild that they would be foraging for However, they do eat a large variety of other things. They are kind of scavengers in the sense that they will eat kind of whatever they come across. A lot of root veggies, because root veggies are found down where all the all the bugs are. Um, they really love fruit. And there are some that will also eat small mammals as well, um, like rodents and things. Really? Yes. So when I worked at the Columbus Zoo, we had a armadillo that came across a baby bunny nest. And got into those. And it was the best treat ever. <laughs> they were just like little bunny nuggets. <laughs> and she left them. That's uh, that's exciting. Yeah. Was it on exhibit or? Yes, it was during. Um, we had the armadillo out in one of the play yards. Oh, no. Yeah. But it's nature. No, it's yeah. Nature. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that stuff being seen. I actually think it's, it's good. But at the same time, my eyes are going to get really big and I'm going to go, oh, no. Oh, I'm sure it was jarring for the guests. I'm sure. And the three-year-olds yeah. that were standing there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there, there's a bear at, uh, at Philly. Well, used to be a bear at Philly. Um, that would occasionally, if the peacocks went up to it, would just kill a peacock. And it's like, dude, why are you approaching a bear? You're a peacock. Stop it. And that's what would happen if a peacock met a bear, you know, in the wild. Darwin would also be disappointed <laughs> in those peacocks. Yes, exactly. Amazing. So um, I'm curious, is it weird to you or would you say that you get a, a weird perspective as a zookeeper? Because like armadillos are super common in, you know, areas like, say, Texas and stuff. Um, and then binturongs and tamanduas aren't. And does any of that have any impact on the work that you do or the way that you look at animals in general? I think maybe it doesn't have so much of an impact on the way that I look at the animals, but it has an impact on the way that I um, teach when I use those animals. So if I am going to teach someone about an armadillo, it's really nice that I can relate it to something that lives in oftentimes their own backyard, in their own country, where a tamandua, I can't find anything in the United States to even kind of compare it to. So it's it helps me bridge that gap just a little bit faster if it's a species that I can relate to a species that might be found in their own backyard. People want to care for the things that are closer to home first most of the time. So when I'm presenting Frankie the fox, I very often quickly have to transition over to talking about red foxes because right, people have right. seen red foxes. They've never seen bad-eared foxes unless they've gone on an African safari or they're from Africa. 
or then to another zoo, I guess, that has them. <laughs> so it just is a really beautiful education piece to be able to liken the two species. Makes sense. So what do you prefer? Showing off things like an armadillo or something? I mean, okay, ignoring the fact that you love tamandawas, because I already see your tamandawa eyes happening. Goodness gracious. But ignoring that for a second, do you like showing off rare, cool things that, or do you like really like introducing, especially kids, but really anyone, to species that they may see in their backyard or that they can connect with more easily um, in the way you were talking about? So being an ambassador keeper means I can't pick between those two things. I do have to love them both equally because there is such a beautiful moment to witness for either of those. When I let a tamandua, yes, I said it, out of an, out of its, uh, you know, carrier into a room full of little kids who have absolutely no idea what this thing is and watching their eyes fill with wonder and with awe and with questions, um, that gives me such an amazing playing field to be able to educate them and, um, it's, it's almost just like bringing magical creatures or something to them. And, but then on the flip side, the moments where I bring something and they get super excited because they know exactly what it is that I'm pulling out and they can tell me that they've seen it before. It kind of actually turns the tables a little bit and they get to be the experts just for a moment right, right. and get so excited. And I can tell that, that that connection has already been formed. So I'm just going to help foster it. I, I'm not the one first introducing them to it. Where with a tamandua, I very well might be the first person who's ever said that word to them. So there's huge excitement in both sides. Of course, because you're the Disney princess. And (laughs) of course, and of course you say it's magical. But let me ask it from this perspective. Okay. Um, And I, I, the thing that I love about you is that that was a very diplomatic answer. But I also know that you actually mean it. Um, Whereas sometimes people say the diplomatic thing while rolling their eyes for half of it. No, I I could tell how sincere that was. But I'm curious, in your experience, um, and especially with kids, which do you find they get more excited about? Probably the animals that are in their own backyard are the the bigger wow moments because there's not usually as much of a fear response where sometimes the unknown can be scary. Something that comes out of an enclosure into a classroom that suddenly there's no barrier between these kids and this animal and it's got giant several inch long claws. That can be intimidating if you've never seen it before and you have no idea what it is. Now, it's my job to do a really, really good job preparing them and explaining how kind my animals are and how safe the environment is and how I have it under control. But the moments when, it, when, a, when a child sees a fox step out onto a table, they get so giddy. They know what a fox is. It was probably in books they read as a child or they've seen one out on a hike or on the TV. And those moments... Those are when the kids get really geeked out. Yeah, I kind of figured. That's interesting. And that that gives me an interesting perspective on something that has, I guess, long bothered me as a zoo fan, which is um, every time that I hear a parent or a kid look at some rare, cool, unique animal and compare it to something in their backyard, it always kind of annoys me a little bit, especially when it's not taxonomically accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, And, okay, so it took me 27 and a half minutes. But red pandas. There you go. Of course. Yeah, of course. As I'm hanging out, the thing I always hear is, oh, it's just a raccoon. It looks like a raccoon. And I get so annoyed. And depending on 
um, you know, how much caffeine I've had that day. I occasionally like to correct, and by occasionally I mean almost always, and very nicely, and I, I believe that education is important, and I believe that that's kind of my role, even though I'm not a keeper, but in this podcast and everything. And so, you know, if I'm at a zoo, I, I like to educate, especially if people seem open to it. But on behalf of the red pandas, I always get annoyed. They're not raccoons. They're very cool. I mean, raccoons are also very cool. But um, but I think that gives some interesting perspective because I know this annoys a lot of people. I'm not alone in this. And um, I think that's very cool to think about the fact that if you're really just relating it to something you know, it's actually trying to form a bond with it. Yeah, absolutely. And we go through life trying to relate things to experiences we've already had and and ways to make the world just a little bit more comfortable and a little bit less scary. So I think when people come to the zoo, though it is annoying for us as keepers as well to hear <laughs> things likened to the most bizarre things sometimes, there's actually a weird bit of comfort in it. It means they care and they're taking the time to look and they're seeing some similarities between a raccoon and a red panda, which you and I both know if you watched their behaviors and you look at their facial structures and you look at the way their coloring is, there are similarities. Sure, sure. And that means they're taking the time to observe. And I think it's our job, yours and mine, to be able to educate them kindly. And But it gives us a foundation to go off of. If they come up, barely glance at a red panda, and then walk away, I think you'll probably be peeved at that too because they're not – they're not seeing how amazing red pandas are. Well, yeah, that just proves they're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even give you a platform to start with. Right. No, but when someone sense. wants to sit long enough to try to make a connection in their brain with something they've seen before, why is this familiar to me? It gives you something to start with, which is a whole lot easier than starting something new. And there it is. That's the perspective that I love that you always bring to these kinds of things. That's going to be the moment in this podcast that everyone's always talking about. Um, yeah, that's, I really love looking at it that way. And I'm going to be slightly less annoyed at people now. Slightly. I mean, let's be honest, we're all human here, but, um, very cool. All right. So pick another animal. Go. Pick another animal. Um, did, I don't believe we talked about the wallabies last time. You know, we didn't, which is really weird. Yeah. So especially because one of them is kind of a little bit of a Cincy Zoo celebrity. Pocket. Yeah, and he's the, also my little friend now. We've hung yes, out a couple times. I love him. Pocket. The Bennett's Wallaby Joey, for those of you who like Cincinnati Zoo um, social media, which we've already talked about how amazing it is, go hop on there and look up some pictures of Baby Pocket. You can also find them at Zookeeper Colleen, because Colleen has her own Instagram account now that she's trying to grow, and it is an amazing follow. Yes, and I do have lots of pictures of Pocket on there, because he's so photogenic. So Pocket, like I mentioned, is a Bennett's Wallaby Joey. For those of you who don't know, Joey just means a baby um, wallaby kangaroo, um, other marsupial species as well. And... He came to us last year in his mom, Ava's pouch. So Ava arrived with Pocket in the pouch, and we didn't see Pocket for the first couple months that Ava was here. Did you know you were getting Pocket? We did. Okay, okay. That would have been amazing. <laughs> Unexpected wallaby would have yes. been great. <laughs> so the keepers at his previous institution had done a check, a pouch check on Ava, and they did confirm that there was a Joey in there. He was teeny tiny. So when Ava came here and she had to get her first checkup to clear quarantine and be able to be introduced to the rest of our mob, which is a group of wallabies, she was down at the vet hospital and we opened her pouch just a little bit and we were able to see Pocket and he looked like something that fell from Mars <laughs> and was tiny and naked and pink and 
so strange but adorable and we were instantly in love with him and then when he first started peeking his head out it would just be a little bit of his nose or his foot would accidentally make its way out as he was getting too big to really <laughs> sit in the pouch so you'd see these pink gangly toes sticking out and then it would be his head and he was totally bald so I was able to watch every single bit of his development as he was getting brave enough to leave the pouch and as fur was starting to develop. And it was a really incredible experience watching him try solid foods for the first time. And watching him dive into his mom's pouch is the funniest thing. Go look up videos of wallabies and kangaroos diving to their mom's pouches. It is a head-first somersault <laughs> ordeal. So when something would spook him if he got too far from the pouch... He would turn around and hop, 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 zoom across the enclosure and dive hands and head first into her pouch. And then he'd roll around and stick his head back out and make sure that it all was clear. Um, when he got too big to get into the pouch, he would take his front hands and open the pouch, stick his head in so he could keep nursing. Okay. But he was too big to fit his whole body in there. So uh, I'm guessing most people will know, but... Um... Marsupials in general, and, and Pocket in particular, um, explain why you were able to see so much of the development process and why it's different than, than you know, most mammals and stuff. Yeah, so for something like, well, in this case, a wallaby. So I'm just going to speak to wallabies. Um, the babies are, quote unquote, born uh, very, very, very small, about the size of a bumblebee. They will kind of crawl out of mom and they make the long journey up the front of the abdomen find the hole for the pouch down inside and then they can attach to a nipple and they can finish their development in this really nice protected space. The reason we were able to see so much of the development is because in a lot of animals, I would say most non-marsupial species, that development happens while baby is still inside mom. It has not been birthed yet. Um, humans, we, we would not survive if we were born as early as a wallaby is born. So being able to watch Pocket's appendages form, I forgot to mention, I wasn't able to really see formed appendages when he was in the pouch that first time. That's amazing. When we did our pouch check. So watching the arms stick out for the first time, there was no fur. Where a lot of things like puppies, they're born looking like dogs. They're just tiny and wimpy, but they're born looking like dogs. So that's it's a really incredible, incredible experience when it comes to marsupials is being able to watch that development with your naked eyes, no scientific equipment required, and watch that development take place that would otherwise be so secretive. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That is so cool. All right. So you have 200 animals, but you're getting to add a couple more species in your mind. What would you pick? Oh, my goodness. Well, one of my dream species is a Gambian pouch rat, and the Gambian pouch rats are the rats that you guys may have heard of. They do a lot of really amazing, amazing work over in Africa, sniffing out landmines and helping um, protect people from landmines. And these Gambian pouch rats are hero rats, is what they're actually like referred to as. And they also live a really long time, and they're way bigger than your normal rats, and they're really, really, really cute. So I would love to be able to work with those guys. And actually a second rat species, the giant jumping rat, would be one of my dream species to work with as well. I really, really have a love for small mammals. That's where my heart is, small and medium-sized mammals. 
everything from a rat to a tamandua actually to fit it perfectly. And so, yeah, probably honestly two rodent, two rat species. I'm sorry, that is the wrong answer. The correct answer was echidna. Oh, echidna. sorry. <laughs> No, that's awesome. I'll take one of those, too. Yeah, right, right. Echidnas are amazing. (laughs) Use that a couple. Uh, That's fair. That's fair. So, um, all right. I think we have time for one more in-depth on an animal. Okay. So hit me. One of my favorite animals in interpretive is Erwin, the tawny frogmouth. Oh, I love tawny frogmouths. And I don't think we talked about tawny frogmouths before, but tawny frogmouths are an absolutely amazing bird species found in Australia. They are not owls. If you look up a picture of a tawny frogmouth while you're listening to this podcast, you might think that that looks like an owl. They are not. They are in the nightjar family, so they are related to nightjars. And they are. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) They are called tawny frogmouths specifically because when they open their mouth, they look a bit like a frog. Their mouth takes up an insane amount of their head, and they can open their mouths really far. And the reason that I love Erwin the Tawny Frogmouth is because he has been quite a challenge to work with. Oh, yeah? Yes. So Tawny Frogmouths have earned a reputation as being sort of bumps on a log when it comes to programming. They Their weight fluctuates greatly between the seasons. So sometimes they're really, really heavy and then sometimes they're on the lighter end. They don't usually spend a lot of time being super active in their enclosures. They might fly from spot to spot, but that's about it. So... Erwin, however, doesn't like hands. Well, it doesn't make him a really great bump on a log to not sit on my hand for a program. (laughs) So I decided to change my approach with Erwin. He was never going to want to sit comfortably on my hand. He always just saw it as a bad guy. So I started training him to step up onto just what we call a T-perch. And seeing what he wanted to do, I started really trying to ask Erwin to lead our training sessions and kind of what he seemed inclined to do. I just kind of followed and provided him a good platform to do those things. So now Erwin, the tawny frogmouth, who some would label as a bump on a log, flies across the room to another tea perch held by another handler. And he's one of the uh, first tawny frogmouths to be flying on programs. There are other zoos that do that as well now, but it is a relatively new thing for Tawny Frogmouse. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, so like I like to do, I'm going to open up the floor. Anything you want to plug, anyone you want to give some love to, any conservation organizations you want to talk about, uh, go for it. Yeah. So I do want to give um, a shout out actually to... My friend Lauren at Kairos Creature Collective, because she is doing amazing work highlighting some of these ambassador animals that don't always receive a lot of love. Things like tamanduas and screaming hairy armadillos and a lot of these little guys that aren't huge charismatic species like your lions and um, gorillas and things, but just as important and just as incredible. So she um, has a clothing line, Kairos Creature Collective. That actually has a shirt that features Isla and her baby Manny and a face mask as well. And I'm just really excited about shedding some light on some of these species and um, sending some money to their conservation as well with some of the proceeds from these shirt sales. Yeah, it is an amazing company. Um, I am a brand ambassador for them now, and that is something that I take very seriously. Um, definitely check out Kairos. It is, it's an amazing company run by an amazing woman. And uh, we're going to see if we can't get her on the podcast here at some point in time. It's time for Interrupting. 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 
interrupting John. And if you haven't figured it out yet, that Lauren is Lauren Lott, who you can hear on last week's episode. Well, one of last week's episodes. Um, in case you can't tell, I don't always release these in the order they were recorded in. Okay, back to the interview. Um, that would be pretty exciting. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. All right. And now it's time. Rossafari poop story. Go. You know, I didn't prep a poop story this time. Let me think of some poop. I'm so annoyed at you right now. I don't know why I'm speaking this into the mic. I'm clearly cutting this part, but I know. know. (laughs) I gotta think of some poop. I'm just used to getting all over my hands. (laughs) (laughs) Today, I picked up poop with my hands. Yesterday, I got poop on my face. Like, that's pretty normal for me. Your your story last time was definitely about how you just decided to pick up poop with your hands, so. Oh, that's true. And how Salvador peed on my face. Well, yeah, yeah. Both of those. Poop, poop, poop. (laughs) <laughs> okay, not poop, but still squishy, still <laughs> still bodily okay. brains. Ooh. So a little bit ago, my head keeper and I, Aaron, we raised some screech owl chicks, and they came to us at six days old, so they had to be hand-fed every single meal. So we would chop up their rodents really small to hand-feed them. However, they were very, very picky eaters. We learned very quickly that the key to feeding screech owl chicks is to use brains like ketchup. So we would cut off the heads of these rodents and just squeeze just a little dab of the brains onto whatever piece we were going to feed the chick, hold it right under their beak. They would open their mouth just a little bit and get a taste of that brain, and we could stick the piece into their mouth, and they would swallow it. So we started just having a bowl of rodent heads that had a hole in them so we could and we just called it our ketchup, and we would squeeze it out and feed our screech owl chicks, who are alive and thriving and healthy and doing well. <laughs> that's amazing. Yes. You know, that's actually not entirely uh, uncommon, although I've never heard of it with brains before. But um, Zoe and I have a pet snake named AJ, um, or Snakey McSnakeface, as I like to call him. <laughs> and uh, we've switched him to something called Reptilinks, which are basically sausages um, for reptiles. Mm-hmm. They're actually really cool, and some zoos are starting to use them. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, he likes them, question mark? Depends on what mood he's in. Okay. But if you take a pinky, which is, you know, for those of you who don't know, a, a couple day old, uh, tiny, tiny little mm-hmm. mouse that, that, you know, you normally feed to a snake, and you just rub the pinky on it for a second, he will annihilate them. The other day I was feeding him, and I wanted him to eat three sausages, and he decided to eat zero. And I pulled out and warmed up a pinky, and I rubbed it each just one time on each sausage and he struck at them like a cobra. I've never seen him move so fast. Wow. Yeah. It's, it is amazing how, how you can think of those things and add that little bit of ketchup. Yeah. You got to get real creative sometimes. Yep. Awesome. Well, Colleen, thank you for doing this again. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Love you, girl. Bye. As I mentioned in the interview, Colleen has an amazing Instagram account where you can go and see so many of the amazing creatures we talked about on both of her episodes, uh, and that is at Zookeeper Colleen. Of course, you can also check out at Cincinnati Zoo to see possibly the best PR team in the business doing their thing, as well as CincinnatiZoo.org to go to the official website of the Cincinnati Zoo. I heard there may be some hippo there named Fiona or something. I don't know. Anyway, and while I'm throwing out plugs, don't forget to check me out at Rossafari on Instagram and Facebook. Let me know what you thought about this episode and just life in general. And hey, did you know that the word credits backwards is Stydirk? 
Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.